This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hey, good morning, Trinity. Pastor Ronnie Garcia. I am coming to you from a state-of-the-art studio, some random wall in my house. I've uh, even put on my Sunday best for you. And uh, I know this is all a little bit weird, but can we all just admit that this is a little bit awesome? Because y'all, nothing is going to stop us from opening God's Word together, so that's what we're going to be doing. If you'll remember, we've been studying Acts, and today actually marks our very last sermon in the sermon series. Next week, uh, the Advent season begins, and it's going to go all the way through Christmas. And uh, maybe after that, we'll go back to Acts or something like that, so we'll see. But if you'll recall, the Acts is actually chronicling uh, ancient stories of the earliest Christians. And the question we have is, why should modern people read about the lives of the early church? Now, to answer that question, I want to illustrate it from a movie called The Devil Wears Prada. It starred uh, Glenn Close and Anne Hathaway. It's terrific. If you don't know the movie, it follows this girl, um, Hathaway's character named uh, Andrea Sachs, or Andy Sachs as they called her. She had just graduated. She lands a job in New York City as the co-assistant to Miranda Priestley. That's Glenn Close's character. And she is the most powerful fashion magazine editor around. Now, Andy, she's good at uh, you know administration, but she knows nothing about fashion. And more than that, she really just doesn't care, right? She's a touch cynical. She, she could care less about fashion. She thinks it's a little bit superficial, right? Now, everyone in the office is like super trendy, wears extremely fashionable clothes, but Andy, she always looks a little bit out of place. So there's this one scene where like all of these models and experts are, are, are running through these racks of clothes, trying to get something together to present together for Miranda Priestley, closest character. And, and, and Miranda is like super elitist. I mean, she is a very demanding. So everyone's hustling. Now, at one point, one of the models holds up these two belts, right? And they look nearly identical. But the model says, this is so hard because they're so different. Now, at that comment, Andy, she kind of lets out this little laugh because you know, it seems absurd, right? Now, this gets Miranda Priestley's attention. Listen to the dialogue that ensues. Miranda says, is there something funny? No, no, nothing. Uh, you know, it's just that both of those belts look exactly the same to me. You know, I'm still learning about this stuff. Oh, Miranda says, this stuff. Oh, okay. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select out, oh, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. You're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. 
Then it filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you, no doubt, fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars in countless jobs, and it's sort of comical how you think you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you are wearing the sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Isn't that one heck of a monologue? So good. See, the, the point that Miranda is making is really important. And, it, and it's this, that it's almost impossible to opt out of the influence that the fashion industry exerts. I mean, even if you could care less about fashion, you're still an unsuspecting sheep making decisions that you think are yours, but you're just choosing from a menu that was pre-decided for you. And ladies, you thought your renewed interest in those 1990s mom vintage mom jeans were your idea, right? No, right? You understand. Now, that's all kind of funny, but that phenomena in fashion has a correlation to how we actually interact with the world and the big questions of the world. So our questions, for instance, are, what is life for? What is this world for? What's the point? Now, listen, we have answers to those questions, but those answers that we have selected may or may not be fed to us by the maker of the world and the maker of life. They might be fed by some other industrial complex, you see. So how do we, how do we keep from being unsuspecting sheep? Well, of course, we must ensure that we are sheep to the one true shepherd, right? But how do we do that? Well, that's how this, this text that we're going to study this morning is going to be so relevant for modern people. See, today we are going to see the Apostle Paul walking into the mega center of thought and culture, and he is going to decode it. So in our passage today, we're going to see kind of two principles that are going to actually help us ensure that we are influencers and not the influenced. Uh, we don't become unsuspecting sheep, right, to the system. And so there are kind of two principles here. One is that first we must understand the world. We've got to understand its aspirations and longings. So we've got to understand the world, and then we have to understand Jesus better than we understand the world. So understanding the world and understanding Jesus better than we understand the world. So with that, we're going to get to our text. Let me set it up real quickly, and we're going to jump right into it. If you'll remember, in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas begin their very first missionary journey, right? That, and those that trip was covered in chapters 13 and 14. And then in chapter 15 of Acts, we have this Jerusalem council. And then in chapters 16 through 18, what we see is Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, it's like a second wave. And during the second wave, Paul and his new traveling partner, Silas, uh, they're starting to feel some heat. I mean, uh, they are jailed in Philippi, right? They go to three more cities to include Thessalonica. And like, again, there's these mobs that are forming and trying to, you know, hurt them. And so they leave, they go to Berea and the Bereans were awesome, but Paul is still being tracked. And so at one point his friends say, hey, it's not safe for you here. Why don't you go on ahead of us to Athens and wait for us? So our text today picks up with Paul 
strolling around Athens, Greece, waiting for his friends to catch up to him. All right. So with that introduction, uh, let's pick up in verse 16, chapter 17, book of Acts. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods from the boundaries of their own dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. And that concludes the reading of our uh, Bible for today. All right, so let's get right into it. As, um, as we said, this, this story, uh, it's an ancient story that lets us peek into how the Apostle Paul engaged the world, how he was able to live in the world as an influencer and not being an unsuspecting sheep and the influenced, right? Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Uh, some of you have had the opportunity to actually go to Athens, Greece and visit Greece and visit the ruins, right? I mean, they're spectacular. You've seen the Acropolis. You've seen the Parthenon. They're incredible. You could just go on the internet and look. 
if there's if the ruins are spectacular, I mean, think about how majestic and amazing the city must have been in its prime. I mean, this is the cradle of like all Western thought. I mean, this is like where the intelligentsia of the ancient world hung out. This is the city where Socrates and Aristotle and Plato lived. So you, there are columns and architecture and these magnificent busts of gods plated with gold and silver and marble. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, here's what I want you to understand is that it doesn't actually matter if you lived in Athens. It doesn't matter even if you know how to read or if you know anything about philosophy or art because the ideas that came out of Athens affected the whole world. See, just like Andy was wearing that blue lumpy sweater chosen for her by someone else. See, that's what it was like in Athens and what and the thoughts and the, the, the mindset and the ideas that were coming out. As Athens thought, so did the rest of the world. It was so influential. So even though Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the Athens was actually the cultural center. And so Greek thinking and Greek legacy remained in the Roman Empire. It's actually no surprise that your whole New Testament is actually originally written in Greek. Guys like me have to study Greek because of its enduring legacy and influence. So Paul walks around this city, right? And, and in verse 16, he's looking around. It says his spirit, so Paul, his spirit was provoked within him. Now let me just make a trans, let me translate that for you. This means that Paul was triggered. <laughs> Paul was shook to kind of use modern parlance, right? Now, what, why is this the case? Well, you know, on one hand, Paul's like a good Jew and, and like Jews are serious about like no idols, no icons, right? This would have been very upsetting to his Jewish sensibilities, but that's not the worst part. See, what Paul sees is people um, desperately grasping to make sense of God. He sees people desperately trying to make sense of life and, and what it means to be human. And what he sees is that it's not working. See, they're all looking for this coherent vision of what it means to be human. And these deaf, dumb, but beautiful idols... <laughs> are the best that they can do. And it makes Paul sad for them, you see. Now, here's the thing to know about Paul's faith. He doesn't understand his own faith as some sort of private philosophy that gives him inspiration or comfort, right? He believes that his faith is a public faith. It is for the marketplace. See, Paul thinks that the reasonableness and the answers of his faith can stand up just fine among the very heavyweights, heavyweight philosophers of the world, you see. So, you know, he first goes to the Jewish synagogue, his own people, but then he goes to the marketplace. Now, when you see that word marketplace, don't just think about commerce. It's actually the place where ideas get their currency, right? It's the, it's the place where art and economics and education and philosophy and law were like all discussed and considered. So Paul listens, but the moment he opens up his mouth, 
his ideas are like like fingernails on a chalkboard. I mean, both the Epicureans and the Stoics are absolutely puzzled by what he is saying. And, and let me explain why this is so significant. So the Epicureans, they would be like the, the progressives of their culture, like on the left, if you wanna kind of use that sort of uh, taxonomy. Epicureans were the moral relativists. Their vision of God is that, uh, of their gods were that the gods were distant, disinterested in what was going on. And so, you know, for them, it was like, if they don't care, we don't care, have at it, give yourself to every pleasure and so forth. That's how Epicureans loved. The Stoics would have been on the other side. They would have been on the, they would have been the right, the, the conservatives or the alt-right or maybe something like that. They would have been the equivalent of like moral fundamentalists. See, they understood that they believed that God, the God was in everything, right? Kind of a pantheistic thing. And, and so you want to reason yourself into God and, and be in harmony with the world. And you don't want to use your emotions because emotions would just confuse it. So you have to separate from it and, and live a very strict life. But here's the point. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics, the left and the right, were, 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 were puzzled by the gospel. And, and in fact, they, they at first they deride him, right? Look, look what they say in verse 18. They say, what's this babbler saying? And they, they go and they say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now that comment is true, but it is ominous. Because that was the same accusation that was levied against Socrates when they put him on the chopping block 400 years earlier. All right, so they're really giving Paul a hard time. But guess what? Although they're giving him a hard time, they kind of like it. I mean, they mock him, but they want a little bit more. And so what they do is they take him and invite him to the Areopagus. That is also known as Mars Hill. So that's actually like this big rock, but more than that, it's kind of like um, the high court of deep state philosophizing and, and philosophical discussions and debate society on all matters in society. So it's a kind of a big deal that he's there. Now listen, Paul is very well studied. A smart and educated religious Jew in that time could hold their weight with anyone in the world. The intellectual tradition among the religious Jews was incredible. He was quite smart. But the reason why Paul never became the influenced and he remained the influencer was not because he was smart. It was because he could see what was really happening behind the philosophizing, right? In fact, in verse 21, we're given this weird little comment. Look there, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Isn't that like a really interesting little observ observation? In other words, Paul could peel back the, the veneer of intellectualism and see not ideas, but see a, a sacred restlessness. What he's seeing is a groping for meaning, a mad stretch, uh, a mad search for, for coherence. 
but a search that would never pay out, you see. But here's the thing is that Paul, he's not rushing in with a superiority complex, right? He is not cynical about Greek culture. In fact, what we see is that Paul gives compliments. I mean, com- compliments them in three different ways. Compliment number one, he he, he compliments them by studying their culture. He's trying to meaningfully understand their baseline cultural narratives. Before he ever spoke, we're told in verse 23 that Paul spent time observing their objects of worship. Right? He's asking, what are these people looking for? What is all of this philosophy looking for? Where do they think they're going to find salvation? Because everyone's looking for it. So he, he, he really studies them. He also compliments them when he addresses them there in verse 22. He says what? He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That is not a critique. That's a compliment. And that's not flattery either. He's meaningfully connecting with them. Their hearts are really looking for coherence and meaning and purpose. And then in co- the uh, third compliment is that he actually cites their own poets and their own philosophers back to them, doesn't he? Look there in verse 28. It says, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, he's saying, You guys are you're not that far off. See, Paul sees their perspective not as something that needs to be assimilated, right? Paul's not like, hey, this all, this, you're close, sounds good to me. No, he doesn't do that because if he did, then he would be the influenced, not the influencer, right? But he's saying, hey, I see what you guys are looking for. I understand what your hearts are, are desperately longing for. And your culture has fragments of the truth. Let me just put the pieces together for you, you see. And you'll notice he doesn't even quote from the from the Bible. I mean, he could. He knows the Bible backwards and forward, but he doesn't because it would have been unintelligible to them. They wouldn't have a frame of reference to even understand it. He, he speaks to them on their own terms. He shows a meaningful appreciation and understanding of their world. He shows a meaningful understanding of their culture. Now listen, appreciation does not mean that you're giving culture a pass. That's not what that means. But it does mean that you're looking long enough to know what you are critiquing. It means sitting in it long enough to see how all the histories and stories are shaping their longings. You see, Paul is not a culture basher. He is not just trafficking stereotypes here. He's understanding their longings compassionately. And that bridge building is what keeps him from being assimilated. It keeps him as the influencer instead of the influenced. Now, I don't know if this is a little bit counterintuitive, but we've got to understand this for ourselves and and do this. Otherwise, we won't survive our own culture because culture is contagious and sticky, you see. And so many of people that we love and respect and and our friends' children are getting eaten up because we don't understand this. We see this in in kind of two different ways. Like on one hand, so many of our friends and people that we love and their children, 
what they're doing is they are without discernment just drinking up baseline cultural narratives right they're just social media taking it all in their their imaginations being you know uh you know habit you know inhabited by all of these ideas and one day they wake up thinking you know believing in jesus seems impossible anymore wow i'm so glad that i'm educated now right now listen it was never about education it was about swimming and breathing in ideas that we had no idea were colonizing our imagination and we kept doing it until the people that we love and our friends children became utterly secular with no interest in jesus so on one hand you have people who are just drinking in culture right without any discernment but on the other hand there is a sector of our friends who uh the you know our parents and our youth leaders and all that they they uh they taught us that culture is bad right we were taught to hate culture and we grew up very cynical towards anything like non-christian now listen that kind of derision that that temperament against culture our youth leaders and our parents they thought that they were protecting us that's why they did it they thought they were protecting us but what is it that actually happened well i don't know think about your youth group from high school right they uh they we imitated that kind of negativity that derision towards culture we imitated it but then we went off to college and our minds got blown up and we started doing the opposite and and in reaction to that anti-culture mentality we threw away jesus and you know why that happened anyway because hating culture was not powerful enough to keep us loving jesus and ultimately many of our friends and our friends children walked away from the lord and here's the point both sides the unsuspecting drinking in culture or the anti-culture sides they both produced the same thing both sides were assimilated but listen the early church was so different paul models for us something very different a third way we, we are to listen and seek to understand and we don't give anyone a pass but we don't get judgy right and when we can really understand the world understand culture when we understand its aspirations then we can understand how even their good arguments are just attempts at trying to find meaning and coherence in this life and so truly and meaningfully and appreciatively understanding the world is critical for not being assimilated by it you see does that make sense all right so so far uh, what i've try to say is that in order to be an influencer and not be influenced we, we've got to understand the world but now the second part is even more important to be an influencer you must understand Jesus more than you understand the world and let me illustrate while the, why this is so uh, crucial 
And there's a story, I don't know if the story is true or anything, but about these two sort of native Amazon kids who kind of ventured away from the region where their tribe were and they were out about palling around, I don't know, probably not unlike North American kids or something like that. When they uh, out, when they're out and about, they stumbled upon this clearing and they found this large sort of North American style house. And they assumed that the house was abandoned, so uh, their curiosity took them to explore it a little bit. So around back, they found a tennis court and a tennis ball. But the thing is, they don't know what, uh, they don't know that it's a tennis court because they've never seen something like that before. Uh, but they could kind of perceive that it was like the location where games were played or something like that. So they picked up the tennis ball and they created a game where they started kicking the ball back and forth over the net to one another. Suddenly, a man emerges from this house. Now the kids were startled for just a second, but the man meant them no harm. In fact, he brought out two tennis rackets. He tightened the net and he proceeded to teach these two native kids tennis. He taught them what the court and all those lines were, were designed for. And the kids say, oh, that's what this is for, right? That's what this is for. And after a full day of fun, the kids say to the man, this game may be harder than the game that we made up, but it is way better. Now this, that illustration, that is a picture of what Paul is up to in Athens. See, he sees that these guys, the Athenians, they are on the court, right? But they don't know what their lives are for. They don't know how to bring coherence in the world. They're trying really hard though, right? But in order to help them, Paul doesn't just deconstruct their, their philosophy. He gives them Jesus. Now listen, Athens is like one big pot of idol and idol worship. Everyone there is looking for God. And, and, and of course they would because they're humans, right? Humans have this unrelenting God consciousness. And, and you do too, and I do too, right? It, it's why sometimes we, um, it's why we feel guilt. It's why sometimes we have dreams that are bigger than the universe can support. It's why uh, we feel so angry sometimes when there's some injustice in the world and things aren't the way that they should be. We have some sense that it should be a different way. It's why dying feels a little bit unnerving because of our sense of the divine. This, this is our God consciousness. Right, it's printed on our soul. But the thing is, the Athenians thought that, that their philosophy is what brought coherence and purpose. And what it, they thought that's what brought life. And Paul says, guys, wisdom is not just an abstraction. And so what he does is he says, hey, you have this, in, this inscription to the unknown God, right? He points that out in verse 23. He says, to the unknown God, listen, I can help you with that. God can be known. And then Paul begins to describe God in ways that absolutely like obliterates their brains. 
It is a God like they have never imagined. They had no categories for it. See, the Athenians, they had gods of things, right? They had a god of love, a god of war, a, a god of fertility. And then they made temples for these gods and they, you know, erected temples and they drew pictures and made statues and they imagined what they looked like and painted them accordingly from, the, you know, just from their own minds. And then these gods that they have made, they were prickly and touchy and needy and capricious. I mean, you always had to do something for your gods. And Paul says, he says, God is not the God of things. He is the God of all things, right? Verse 24, God made the world and everything in it. He's saying, you're building temples to little idols out of material that the one true God created before there was time. Right? That's what Paul's saying. And he goes on in verse 24 and 25. The true God doesn't live in temples made by people. He isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from you. You don't give to God. Why? Because the one true God is the giver. He's the one who does the giving to include the very breath and air in your lungs. It's God that moves the world and the seasons and he is in charge of history. And Paul says, verse 27, he says, God acts like this so that you would look around and find your way towards him and truly find him. And then he says, and guess what? God is not far from us. You can know him. And since God is real, right? Not just this idol, because he's real, he can't be formed in gold and silver and come from the imagination of man. We don't form God. God formed us. We don't make God. God makes us. This just blows up the Athenian mind. And they start dreaming and they say, I wonder, I just wonder if that's what this court is used for. A better purpose. I mean, it's harder, but it could be better. See, the Apostle Paul knew exactly what Jesus was like. And it was his knowledge of Christ that has Paul at the place of influence instead of being influenced, you see. And here's the kicker. In case the people were liking Paul simply because he was novel and it fed their intellectual elitist sensibilities to know something new, he ensures that there is like no confusion. Paul says, Athenians, you're not saved by your intellectual ideas. The story of the world is going somewhere. And being truly open to truth, according to the Apostle Paul, looks a lot like repentance, humility. Because the one true maker is going to judge the whole world in perfect wisdom and righteousness. 
And the thing is, is Paul hasn't even so much as said the name Jesus yet. I mean, who is this God? They wondered. And then Paul stakes the full veracity of everything he has said on the one sacred scandal of our faith. Verse 31, that he has raised him from the dead. When Paul stakes everything on the resurrection of the dead, he's saying this is not a philosophical abstraction. This is a real thing that has happened. It is news. The God-man Jesus is not an esoteric philosophy. He is truth incarnate. And when we talk about Christianity, we're not just debating ideas. We are telling about a real event that God stepped out of heaven and robed himself in humanity and he lived the life that we should have lived and he, and he died the death that we deserved as our substitute, but he was resurrected on the third day and he's going to come again and he's going to fix everything that is wrong and broken and sad in this world. That's, that's news. That's not a philosophy. That's not ideas. And when you begin to understand Jesus like that, you will love him. And I mean hopelessly love him. You know how when Jesus was with a leper, instead of Jesus catching the contagion, of leprosy, the leper would catch the contagion, the contagion of faith. Remember how that would always happen? Well, when you are so in love with Jesus and you're united to Christ, you won't catch the contagion of unbelief in the world. The world will catch the blessed contagion of beautiful faith in Christ. You'll be the influencer, not the influenced. I pray this, this word was, will be really helpful for us as we continue to love our world, love our city, love our families, and love our neighbors. Thank you, Trinity, for listening in, and uh, thank you for your prayers for my family. We're doing great. We're going to be fine. Thank you for your love and concern for us. God bless you.